From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. Hey there. Welcome to the How Did We Miss That podcast. I'm Christine. And I'm John. How are you doing tonight? Excellent. Hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yes. This is the first episode after Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. I got, my days are all screwed up during the holidays. Yeah. I know. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. And on that note, I'm going to jump right in because I have a real smorgasbord cornucopia oh, of stories for horn you. Of plenty. Horn of plenty. I was just going to say real quick, I hope nobody murdered one of their family members on Thanksgiving. That could happen. It Well, I'm about to tell you how it does. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Great segue. (laughs) It's almost like we talked about this. Almost. (laughs) Yeah. So the stories that I have for you today, it all happened on Thanksgiving. And I have a few stories today because I wanted to kind of keep with the Thanksgiving theme. And I couldn't pick just one. They were all really good. So I have some stories for you. I love it. Really quickly, the sources for my stories are a crimefeed.com article by Mike McPadden, Radar Online, and of course, Wikipedia, and an article from the Generation Y podcast blog from September 17th of 2019. So, did you know that in 1789, President George Washington declared November 26th to be officially recognized as a day of public Thanksgiving and prayer? Do you want me to say no for dramatic effect? Because I did. I don't know. know. Did you know that? I did. Well, I didn't. We've been to Mount Vernon and I learned it there. Oh, really? Did we? Okay. Well, I didn't know that. Okay. Since then, Americans have celebrated Thanksgiving on each fourth Thursday in November, with most citizens typically observing a traditional gathering of family and intimate friends for a turkey centered feast. Then there are these people. (laughs) There's always those people. There's these people people i'm i've gotta say i'm shocked that this hasn't happened in like my family or a lot of <laughs> okay. families that i know because the holidays are rough man they can be stressful very times. stressful so for the following criminals at least one thanksgiving day didn't mean drumsticks and football and pumpkin pie but instead led to police involvement booking and for most black friday behind bars so my first story is the story of paul michael marriage i think that's how you say it M- merhigi Mer- yeah i don't know <laughs> who sat through three hours of Thanksgiving dinner and sing-alongs around the piano, plotting the moment he would fatally shoot his family. After opening fire, Marriage was heard saying he had waited 20 years to kill them. According to the host of the dinner that turned deadly, there were no arguments, no warnings, no red flags before he just like bursted into a rampage. Besides the people that he killed in his family, there was a six-year-old little girl, one of Aww. the daughters of one of his cousins. Marish also shot his 79-year-old aunt to death and killed his twin sisters, one of whom was pregnant. Jesus. His plan was to shoot his sisters to punish his parents. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm I'm looking upward because I'm thinking of a movie where that happened as well. Hmm. But now it's not coming to me. Anyway, carry on, yeah. It's not clear exactly who was shot when, but the bloodbath could have been worse with 16 family members that were present. 
Well, this must have been pre-COVID because that's not yes. allowed this year. <laughs> the six-year-old daughter of his cousin, Jim Sitton, Michaela, wrote on cards how thankful she was for her family and strung them on a clothesline. After dinner, she sang songs as part of an impromptu dress rehearsal for a performance of the Nutcracker she was to be in the next day. Marriage was originally not invited to the dinner, but his father later called him and told him to come. I'm sure they're really happy with that guy. Yeah, right. He was rarely present at family functions and had only met the host. Marriage is, uh, sorry, marriage was his wife's cousin. I get too okay. many, too many yeah. cousins and yeah. too many weird family tree things. So yes. that one confused me. But so the host of the dinner and his wife, he was the wife's cousin. Gotcha. And, and okay. he had only met him twice in their whole marriage. A witness said that he methodically picked off his victims, shooting his twin sisters, Carla, a real estate agent, and Lisa, who was pregnant. Marriage also shot his aunt, Ramond Joseph. There was like a little tilde on the O there. So, mm. <laughs> and two others who were critically injured. It was. So, how many people total? I think a total of four. I should have been counting. Plus as the I was two going. injured people. Okay. So, I, yes. six were okay. hurt, hit yeah. somehow. It was most likely not planned to kill Michaela, but the members of the family think that he became jealous when everyone was so delighted by her singing. <laughs> so this guy has some issues, I think. I don't mean to laugh, but that's just funny how you presented that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Michaela- that's, how, that's how these killings go. I mean, oftentimes there's people that you didn't necessarily weren't on your list, but they're... Oh, is that how it goes? Yeah, they're just there. You just happen to be, you know, you, yeah. don't have, you have your killing list and sometimes people just get in the way. Yeah, the because of their yeah. delightful singing or otherwise. Right. Or they're just there. They get in the way. I'm just saying that there's oftentimes victims that were not part of the plan. They were right. just in the way or happened to be there. Oh, shit. I didn't know you were going to be there. Gotcha. <laughs> Guess you're dead, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Okay. Well, Michaela was a voracious reader who loved to sing, dance, and tell stories. She would have turned seven in a few days. After the massacre, marriage fled the scene. Jupiter police looked in bodies of water near the home and alerted Michigan authorities to be on the lookout for marriage because a doctor in the Detroit area had treated him three months prior. We're not really sure what for. It wasn't clear. And it also wasn't clear whether he suffered from mental illness, though. I mean, it seems pretty clear. Yeah. Based on, you know, I've got a doctorate, so I know. I actually hope he was, to be honest with you, because what normal person not suffering from that does this, right? Right. Court documents showed marriage and his siblings had a troubled history. Nearly a decade ago, marriage sought protection from law enforcement after he accused his sister of trying to kill him, according to records obtained by the Miami Herald. He dropped the request a few weeks later. In 2006, Carla, his sister, requested a restraining order against her brother, saying that he threatened to kill her and himself. She also withdrew her request a few weeks later. So eventually he was captured. He cut a plea deal for seven consecutive life sentences to avoid the death penalty. We talked about that on a, on a different episode prior to this. Why do people do that? We need to look into that. Yeah, we should look into Is that. Is death row really that sure. shitty or what? I mean, like you're obviously going to die there. I mean, yeah, I, I don't get seven it. consecutive life sentences. You're, you're not getting out. Yeah. It's not, uh, well, and life sentence means that you'll die there. You just won't be killed there. No. So a life sentence is actually, I believe, 65 years. Each oh, life really? sentence. Okay. Yes. Or something like that. 85 years, 75 years, something like that. So if you, you know. You're in your 20s, are I guess in your 20s it would make and sense. live to yeah. be, you know, <laughs> older, you actually might might be getting out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pandemics aside and whatever, I would say prison's sort of a safe, controlled environment where you probably could live that long versus out and you're not driving, you're not 
Yeah, I don't know. Doing all the other normal dangerous things out there. Hmm. Except possibly getting shanked in the Yeah, you could always take a shiver to the (laughs) neck or whatever. But I mean, depending on what prison you're at and whatever, you can hold your own. Right. So my next story was a Thanksgiving dispute over chores that turned deadly outside of Colorado Springs. This could definitely come out of our family with Mm -hmm. our two kids. Yeah. (laughs) Well, 76-year-old Ayalis Clay Oliver shot and killed his 49-year-old son, Keith, after the two had argued for most of the day. The older Oliver told police that he and his son had been arguing for hours when the victim's mother, 75-year-old Marjorie Oliver, asked her son to leave. When he refused, the arrest affidavit says that the father went upstairs, retrieved a 357 caliber revolver, and shot his son once in the head. Then sat on some steps in the house and waited for the police to arrive. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I'm laughing at these sick, it's, terrible it's tragedies. It's it, crazy. It is crazy. And I've heard about this in this year, actually. I can't remember where the story was from or when, but it had to do with politics being an election year. Right. A father and son got in a fight and something, you know, I, I don't know if death was involved, but the son like severely beat the father with a shovel or something. I mean, it, it, this, it happens. Families are... Some families are really uh, screwed up. Yeah, and I'm sure when you get the stress of holidays and things going on, we're going to hear a, a story later on about it's sometimes really hard for families to get along with each other, and then you throw the holidays in, and it just, everything explodes. Yes, and sometimes at these holiday gatherings, you're forced to go. We, okay, yeah. We, we've been in that position before. You really don't want to go, but it, you're kind of forced to go by the family, the elder in the family, whatever. And if you already or maybe are a little bit mentally ill or have these plans to do something, that's like, that's your opportunity, right? That's your like crime of opportunity there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a more recent case occurred when Kelsey Barrett, 29, mom to a one-year-old daughter, disappeared from a grocery store in Woodland Park, Colorado. What's with Colorado on Thanksgiving? I don't know. Uh, and this was on Thanksgiving in 2018. So this was pretty, pretty recent. Her fiance and father of her child, Patrick Frazy, was accused of killing Barrett that day and burning her body, which has yet to be found. Oh, well, yeah. How do you find a burned body? Right. Frazy was convicted of first degree murder almost a year later on November 18th of 2019, just days before Thanksgiving. Frazy was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 156 years for the killing. Hmm. So that's insane. That's, yeah. a, that's a sentence right there, man. Yeah, it is. Frazee's mistress, Crystal Lee Kenny, testified in the first week of the trial that she helped him clean up a bloody mess at the Barrett's condo. During her testimony, she claimed he told her he killed Barrett with a bat. Ooh. Yeah. So I've, I've heard some testimony that it's actually quite hard to kill someone like that, that the human body is actually quite strong and does whatever it can to continue to survive. So you you can't just like hit someone one time. Like you got to really go for it. And it's pretty messy, I guess. Well, yeah. A blunt head trauma, I would assume, is the uh, method here. And yeah, I think that like you can be saved from that if you hit right. your head in an accident or whatever. They have to do all kinds of things with draining your brain and all kinds of gross surgeries. Right. But you can still live from it. So to actually continue beating and bludgeoning someone till they die Yes, it's going to be messy, but yeah, what it, I would think you'd tire yourself out before the person yeah, I don't know. dies because you have to hit so hard and so fast. Right. So the mistress also claimed that she had helped him burn the body 
on the stand, investigators described a bloody mess in the couple's home. And I mean, bloody mess, like they weren't British. Like it was. <laughs> what a bloody mess. It was really bloody. It was actually bloody and messy. Yeah, yeah it, it would was, be. It was apparently quite bad. Yeah. We have another one. Oh. On Thanksgiving Day of 2012, when Haley Kiefer, 18, and her cousin Nicholas Brady, 17, were shot to death when they broke into the home of Byron David Smith, 64, in Little Falls, Little Falls, excuse me, Minnesota. It sounds like such a cute little place. Little Falls, yeah. Minnesota. Right next to Big Falls. I know, right next to Big Falls. But it sounds like a quaint little, you know. Yeah, in it the does. woods place, at least it's not Colorado this time. Well, yeah, and in your quaint little little falls towns, that's where someone's gonna you break into my house, you go and get shot. Yeah. Well, so apparently this had been something that's been going on for Smith. He had had over a dozen break-ins in the last few months on his mm. property. So he was a former military officer. He had his his father was a military officer. He had like a separate garage. Mm-hmm on his property that had gotten broken into and his medals were stolen. His dad's POW watch was stolen. Mm. There was like $4,000 that was stolen. There was $5,000 worth of coins he had collected. So he's like pretty done <laughs> with this situation. Um, at this point in time, he had taken to wearing a holstered gun around his house because <laughs> wow. he was like really upset about this. Well, apparently, this isn't even in my story. This isn't in my notes at all. I'm like going way off the cuff here. Hey, good. I like this. <laughs> Improv, baby. So apparently, he had been driving around town when he saw a girl in his army jacket that he knew was his. So he knew it was her. She's the one. Um, so I'm actually going to find my place here in my notes. Yeah. Well, while you do that, I'm looking at Little Falls, Minnesota. Okay. And I don't know much about Minnesota, only being to Minneapolis one time. This is north of that northwest of that it does appear to be just a little town south of brainerd hmm. only thing i know about brainerd is they have drag races there and it's kind of foresty looking so i'm surprised there's so much crime going on at his house unless he was specifically targeted but it does look beautiful right on the river nice little town. yeah i mean i have yeah. a feeling he probably was specifically targeted oddly enough um and i heard this actually from the my favorite murder podcast george hardstart covered yes. this story actually um just a little minor podcast, no big deal. Yeah, no big deal. Um, she had said that his original job with the military was security. <laughs> and Karen made a really good joke that apparently he wasn't doing a very good job. <laughs> well, it sounds like he was retired. You know, the skills start to go away. Is that right. a jab at me because I'm a security no, guy? <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like, Karen said he's obviously not bringing his work home. I will tell you so as a security he, practitioner. He did actually have, like quite a bit of surveillance cameras and all that stuff, which we'll get into in a minute. But anyway, go ahead. But he wasn't doing a very good job. Ob at it. Obviously not. I was just going to say as a security practitioner, 99% of the security jobs out there are not, uh, not very involved. So I could right. see where you wouldn't be that great at it, I guess. Yeah. So I just want to mention this really quick before I move into like actually what happened in the story, because you might be interested in this. This case actually sparked a debate over the castle doctrine. Do you know what that is? Of course I of do. Of course you do. But I'm just going to let our readers know that it allows a homeowner to, to defend their home with lethal force. The prosecution alleged that Smith's actions and a recording he made himself while the incidents were unfolding showed premeditation and that he used excessive force after having neutralized the threat. So because of that, he was convicted by a jury after three hours of deliberation and he was sentenced to life in prison. 
Can I elaborate on the castle Absolutely, doctrine? Absolutely, please do. So it's a little bit different state to state. Some states have some like addendums onto it and whatever. But for the most part, if you're a gun owner legally, you can defend yourself as long as you can't get out. So for example, right. if we're sitting in our living room and we can safely get out the back door, I can't shoot the person. Also, if I scare them and say, hey, I got a gun in here, the dog starts barking and they're running away, definitely can't shoot them as they're running away. Because like all you, all, everything you said, that's excessive force. That's premeditation. That's like, I'm, I'm trying to, it's no longer self-defense. I'm trying to kill these people. So I have a question. Obviously, the listeners can't see our home. Right. But we've got basically just one long room yeah. that starts from the front door and goes yeah. to the back door. Yeah. If we're sitting in the middle, which is the couch, mm -hmm. and the person comes in the front door and starts rushing toward us and we don't have time to get to the back door. Can you then shoot or is it like, oh, shoot, well, we could have been at the back door, so I can't or. So that's the other part of this is the letter of the law versus spirit of the law. It depends on, you know, I would say it depends on your town. So our town okay. is probably a little more lenient toward these things. But if you're in like New York City and you happen to be one of the lucky ones who got a gun permit in that state that does not give them to anybody, it's probably going to be a little tougher to defend that. But if you're in more of a rural town where the laws are a little different toward guns, then I would say that. There's some gray area there depending on your prosecutor and all that. But yeah, technically you're supposed to at least try to get out of the, to get out. Yeah. What I always think about is if we're upstairs, are you expecting me to fly out of a window? Because technically there is an exit <laughs> present. But right. The safe way down is down the stairs, not flying out the window. So at that point, I feel like I'm safe enough to shoot. I don't know. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. It's very interesting. It's a hot topic right now with the whole Breonna Taylor thing because- Right. The cops came in supposedly yeah. not knocking and the boyfriend opened fire and thinks he's protected under castle doctrine, but not necessarily the case there, I guess. Right. Well, by his own account to police, Smith had been visiting neighbors when he saw Kiefer. So remember I told you he had seen her with his jacket on. Yes. So he knew he had told his neighbors, I'm waiting for her to come. So he saw her. Must be a small town if you're oh, yeah. able to wait for that. So he saw her in a car, which he suspected was casing his house. Okay. He commented that he needed to get ready for her and went back to his home. Upon entering his home, Smith turned on a recording device he owned. He removed the light bulbs from the ceiling lights and positioned himself in a chair that was obscured from view in his basement. Yeah, that's okay. not allowed. That's not covered. He heard the window upstairs break and Brady, the cousin, climbed in. Smith then waited in silence for 12 minutes until Brady began to descend into the basement. Smith shot Brady twice on the stairs and once in the head after he fell to the bottom of the stairs. Mm. Smith then made taunting remarks to Brady's body, wrapped it in a tarp, and dragged him into another room. And all this was on tape. This is all on tape. Again, Jesus. remember I told you he's a yeah. security guy. He's got yeah. surveillance, video, and everything <laughs> all over the place. Oh, what an idiot. Well, I have a feeling he thought that like this was okay because he's protecting his home. At this point, you know what I'm saying? He didn't, it, I guess, not realize what the actual laws were. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be a gun owner, you got to study up on this stuff. So we went upstairs and then 10 to 15 minutes later, he ran back down into the basement, reloaded his weapon and took up his previous position in the obscured chair. Minutes later, Kiefer entered the home and could be heard calling her cousin's name. As she made her way down the stairs, Smith shot her. Wounded, she fell down the stairs and Byron can be heard on the recording saying, oh, sorry about that after his gun jams, <laughs> followed by Kiefer saying, oh, my God, very quickly. Smith shoots her again multiple times in the torso in the midst of which she screams, oh, my God. 
and once next to her left eye with a high standard double nine convertible 22 caliber single action revolver. Hmm. It's very specific. Very complicated weapon. There. <laughs> <laughs> he repeatedly called her derogatory names and then dragged her into the other room, tossing her body on top of her cousins and shot her one final time under the chin, killing her. Audio and video of the events were recorded by Smith's security system. The deaths were not immediately reported to the police. Smith waited until the next day Shocking. because he didn't want to bother them on Thanksgiving. Well, how nice of you, Isn't that Smith. Nice? Very nice. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the uh, Thanksgiving massacre in uh, Montana. Little Falls, Little Little Falls. Falls Minnesota. Minnesota, close. That's crazy, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to be real careful saying this here. I think every um, every person out there that's been kind of taunted by a neighborhood bully who's eggs your house or whatever, and your gun owner is probably in your mind is like, oh, this is the dream. I'm going to open fire. I'm man. just going to pick them off, man. I'm going to hide. and I'm, uh, They got another thing coming. But you just can't do that. I know. <laughs> that is big no-no. I hear you, man. man that is, that's crazy. So my next story is about a former pastor who was indicted and then arrested for killing his wife stepdaughter, and her boyfriend on Thanksgiving night. Christopher R. Gaddis, 59, pleaded guilty to three counts of first-degree murder. It all started when Christopher and his wife, Jeanette, got into an argument over her daughter, Candace Coons, 30 years old, and boyfriend, Andrew Boothorn. Um, they had been staying in their home for longer than he wanted. So remember I told you, sometimes family... Yeah, you wear out your welcome, you're going to get really, killed. Really gets to you. Yeah. Christopher was reportedly upset with his wife's children overstaying their welcome and made his intentions clear that he wanted them out of his house two days before the killing. So it's been going on for a little while. Yeah. Tough room. You got two days. <laughs> no, no, no. He, it was two days before the killing. He told her. I want oh, them out. Oh, it had been a while. Yes. Okay. It had been a while. <laughs> Candace's phone. So Candace is the daughter. Her phone was recording at the time when just before midnight, Christopher walked into their kitchen with a loaded pistol. The video saw Christopher shooting and killing Candace and captured Andrew crouched behind a table pleading for him to have mercy. Wait, video? There's video of this too? Mm-hmm. The, the daughter filmed it. She was on okay. her phone. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on here, people? Right, so I'll, I'll elaborate in a, in a second here. Um, so the boyfriend is on the video saying, I will go out, I will leave. Andrew was heard pleading for his life on this video, okay? Christopher shot his wife first, then his daughter, and lastly, Andrew, who was trying to escape the house with the hope of saving himself. Days before Christopher committed the murder, there had been a feud, which was developing between him and the rest of the family. The argument started because Christopher did not want his wife's daughter and boyfriend, who were physical therapists, to stay at his house any longer. He was reportedly okay with them staying for a few days, but it had been weeks since Candace and Andrew moved into the house, and this disturbed him. I mean, can you just... They're squatting. I mean, can you just yell? Yeah, or do I, isn't there? I'm sure there's legal action you can take to get them to move. Well, but out it sounds or like the, it sounds like the wife was fine with it, and she wasn't gonna like help him get him out. Mm. So, well, and it, it is her daughter. Yeah, I can so, see how that could go down. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> if your parents are listening, take note, guys. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> The strange atmosphere around the house lasted for over 48 hours up until the day of the murder. In his last attempt to make Andrew and Candace understand, Christopher tried to talk them into leaving. At around 6 p.m., Christopher went to confront Candace and Andrew while the two relaxed in a hot tub in the backyard. The scene was captured on the surveillance camera that was in the backyard. Shaking his finger, Christopher demanded the couple leave, 
but his wife intervened and recorded the confrontation with her cell phone. Like what? I, that that part confused the heck out of me. Like we've had fights before. I'm not gonna be like I'm gonna whip out my cell phone. I'm gonna record this whole thing. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, you're right. But, but this guy probably has a history of being a dick. So right. So that's the only thing I can think why. of is that clearly she didn't feel safe for some reason. Like right. clearly there was something else yeah. going on here. I, I mean, wish I, that the articles would have stated that. I can see you but, doing that just to use it against me later for a good hey, laugh. No, for a good like, laugh. Oh, like look at this guy blowing up for nothing because I tend to do that, but. It, you're right. This guy, he must have had a history of this. That's yeah, there why. had to be something else going on here. Because right. I mean, at this point, they're they're touting him as a former minister, so it's like you would assume he was a nice, patient, calm guy. But clearly, something's going on that you know we don't know about. Everybody's got their secrets. So at about eleven fifteen p.m., Christopher went upstairs, retrieved his Taurus forty-five caliber semi-automatic pistol, and then walked into the kitchen where the family was playing a board game. Christopher killed all of them one by one and emptied his gun. Christopher initially claimed that he was threatened, saying, they all came after me, and he shot them when they all ganged up on me. <laughs> However, the recordings proved otherwise. <laughs> yeah. The court sentenced him to 100 years in prison for each of the three murder counts, with 45 years suspended on each. <laughs> These sentences crack me up. Like, do you get a... Does the judge get a bonus of like how many years you can add on? Like, oh, I got three hundred years for this guy. Yeah, I it just seems weird to me. Like, I, I know well, it has to do yeah. with some. It's probably out of some law book that are on all the right. shelves in a lawyer's office. But I've he- I've just actually weird. heard that before. There was, gosh, I can't remember the case, but um, somebody had killed a bus full of children, and so they received like a life sentence for each child that was on the bus, and I mean like three hundred years or something insane. Yeah. So it's stuff like that, or like when you kill a large amount of people. Well, I mean, yeah. it's like it's insane. I I get it if it's I I will read in the report sometimes that the state police out here in Mass pulled someone over, and then due to their suspicion they searched the car and then they found drugs. So then they start tacking on all these right. things like no license plate, headlight out, whatever, so they can get enough to make sure this guy gets put away for something that was maybe minor. But if you kill somebody or a bus full of kids, yeah. It, it, is there a difference I mean, it, between it was three thousand years versus right. hundred years? It was or a negligence, you know, vehicular yeah, manslaughter right. type thing, right? But yeah, I mean, he wasn't out to like blow up a bus full of children, but right. I got gotcha. you. Anyway, so this is my last story, and it occurred on Thanksgiving Day. It was actually on November twenty third in nineteen seventy two. Eleven year old Terry Lynn Hollis and her sixteen year old brother Randy were at their home in Torrance, California. Ooh. So kind of close to home on this yeah, one. We have friends in Torrance. We do. Yes. Terry was restless and went to play outside on her bike at around 3 p.m. never to return. The local police were alerted and Terry was officially reported as missing. Officers who arrived at the girl's home at around 9 p.m. searched throughout the night but could not locate the missing child. The following day, fishermen over 70 miles away discovered the body of a little girl near the shoreline at the bottom of a cliff near Oxnard. The female child was in a state of undress, naked with the exception of a white t-shirt, and she very much matched the description of the missing Hollis child with blonde hair and blue eyes, standing at around five feet tall and weighing around 90 pounds. Autopsies would later reveal that she had been sexually assaulted and choked to death before being cruelly discarded. And actually, the shoreline where they found her was just about 62 miles from her home. So, I mean, it's that's quite a drive. Yeah, yeah. Police canvassed the local and surrounding areas and conducted over 2,000 interviews in the hope of unearthing any information that could lead to the identity of Terry's killer. The case quickly went cold 
and stayed cold for almost 50 years. They believed that Terry Lynn had rode her bicycle to a nearby park where she was likely abducted. Newspaper clippings from the time illustrate the direction police took in an effort to find the little girl's killer. One article details the interviews investigators conducted with known sex offenders and how they arrested their first suspect the following month, a 29-year-old man named Ronald Paul Kozak. Although Kozak did have a history of child molestation, there was no evidence to connect him to Terry Lynn's murder, and the charges were later dropped, leaving police at a loss for answers. But this is where it gets good. So it actually connects to another one of our stories we did with the same process being done. Oh. Yes. Okay. DNA evidence found in the victim's body was lifted and preserved, and in the early 2000s, it was entered into the FBI Combined DNA Index System, oh, CODIS. The, the AMBER, no. where they preserved yes. it in a mosquito. Yes, you I remember that episode Amber Alert. we talked about that. So I found out what CODIS <laughs> means for CODIS. you. Oh, good. Combined DNA Index System. Okay. However, it yielded no re- results. But in 2018, it was entered into a genetic genealogy database and flagged a possible relative whom police contacted for further information. Suddenly, after almost half a century, they had a name, Jake Edward Brown. Jake Edward Brown, who also went by the alias Thomas Tracy Burham, moved around a lot and was registered as living at several addresses over the years. 11-year-old Terry Lynn Hollis was not the first to suffer a cruel ordeal at the hands of Brown. Rapes, robberies, and sexual assaults peppered the man's criminal record, and Terry Lynn would not be his final victim. It's unclear why Jacob Edward Brown, at the time 36 years old, was in the area in November 1972. Investigators questioned whether he was passing through and had committed the crime opportunistically, or if he was specifically on the lookout for a victim. They would never find out, as Brown died in Maricopa County, Arizona in 2003, from what was listed on his death certificate as karma, I mean, medical complications. <laughs> According to various reports on the case, he was thought to be homeless or transient at the time of his death. Edward Brown's body was exhumed and a piece of bone was extracted from his remains in order to be tested against the DNA left on the victim's body. And after five decades, the case was finally solved. Amazing. Amazing. A Thanksgiving miracle. (laughs) You don't hear about those every day. No. So those were my Thanksgiving murder stories. I like that. Who knew there were so many? I'm sure there's more. I mean, I originally, well, there's lots more. I'll tell you that. I originally had set out to try to just find one, but I couldn't pick. There was so many like really good ones. And there was like a lot more in there that were just like somebody stabbed their brother in the neck with a (laughs) serving fork. And (laughs) yeah, I I was just going to say there, there is so many, I would say the majority of the families in the world Mm -hmm. are dysfunctional. And you get them all together in the same room during a stressful time. And sometimes people just snap. I know. That's why I'm very grateful to live around no family. And we just do our own thing. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes I want to kill you guys. But hey, now (laughs) you all heard it. Everybody heard it. You heard it here first. We're going to be a story on someone's podcast one day. Maybe. Maybe on that little My Favorite Murder one. That little tiny one. That little tiny podcast that started this true crime wave. I know. Crazy. Amazing. Well, is it my turn? It's your turn. Conspiracy time. Yes, it is conspiracy time. And I have decided to take a very deep dive into the most famous, probably American Mm. conspiracy theory of them all. Do you know what it is? No. Can you guess? 
I'm talking about. And Where's not, Jimmy Hoffa? No. Oh. We should get into that one, too, though. That'd be a good one. Mine's sort of Thanksgiving-themed because it turns out on November 22nd, 1963, 57 years ago, a, a little guy by the name of JFK was assassinated Ooh, in Dallas. Okay. So everyone, I'm sure, has... This, this doesn't really fit the theme of the podcast name because everyone, I'm sure, has seen or heard about this. There's multiple documentaries out there. I am specifically taking my information from just stuff I know and what I've heard, but from a film called Frame 313, The JFK Assassination Theories, made in 2008. It's available on Amazon Prime. Okay. Okay. So wait, I just want to point out, I feel like, yes, we all know this, but like I personally don't know all the little theories. I just know the one thing they told us about. Well, I didn't know. So I, right, yeah, right. I may have missed all of that is what we're saying. And that might have to do with our age. I'm sure our parents know more because there's been more years of coverage of this. Okay. But, you know, there was TV around in 63. There was lots of media coverage following the president just as there is today. So this hit the media and the press immediately. The press played a very big part in this as to how shaping what people believed And so there's been tons of information out there about this. But like I said, probably for our demographic of listeners, maybe they haven't heard of this. And I've seen documentaries before. I'm I'm kind of a weirdo like this and watched some of these as a kid. But this one I hadn't seen. And what I'm going to talk about tonight, which is conspiracy number one, and I'm going to do this in five parts over the next, I don't know, three to to five episodes. Some of them can be crammed into one episode. But the one I'm going to talk about tonight, the film calls theory number one, which has to do with the Warren Commission. Which I didn't know that was a thing. I don't even know what that is. Well, we're going to find out. Good. So just to recap, in case anybody out there truly has been living under a rock and has not heard of this, they failed history class, whatever. Maybe they're in a different country. Maybe in a, maybe in India. Yes, our maybe. Indian listeners. I forgot. On November 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, supposedly by one gunshot from behind. Yes. A magic bullet that traveled through many different people, injuring the Secret Service agent sitting in front of him. And we'll get into how they think that happened in a minute. But they're basically saying that, you know, if if a bullet from this type of weapon doesn't hit any bone or anything, it's plausible that it could do that kind of damage because it was a high-powered military rifle, albeit old. It was an antique, military surplus, Italian-made, but still could do that kind of damage if it's in good shape or whatever. So that's what the media said. That's what the FBI said. That's what this commission report said. More on the FBI in a minute, but we talked about this last two episodes ago with Martin Luther King Jr. Same head of the FBI, same rough time frame. Hmm. Was the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover corrupt in the 60s? Hmm. Maybe. Hmm. We'll see. So JFK was in Dallas on a campaign kind of re-election tour, much like we've seen this year. He had all these stops to go to. And back then, the big thing with campaigning, where now it's kind of a rally or whatever, they did a motorcade. So they, okay, would, they yes. would do some kind of speech or some kind of gathering. Then they'd get in their car and they'd almost have like a parade through a town. Right. And so everyone had told him like, oh, the uh, the people in Dallas love you. You're fine. His previous stops in Houston and San Antonio and wherever – No problems, no issues. Although, kind of hauntingly, JFK said before he left the hotel en route to Dallas, if someone wanted to shoot the president, it would be an easy job to do. 
because so he said that himself he said that himself yikes maybe he started the whole kennedy curse with that comment who knows like why would you put that evil out there right Did it start with him do we know or were there I, other we should do one on that the we kennedy curse well when i get into more of these i think that there's i think it's very plausible that the cia or somebody is out to get this family mm-hmm. i mean that doesn't okay. account for the plane crash unless somebody went in and like doctored the plane to make it crash which could happen the government what i've learned from all this is the government our government's very scary and if they want to <laughs> accomplish something they absolutely have the tools and the Maybe power we should stop to do right so. now on this podcast okay bye <laughs> yeah i mean is there anything here any t- tapping or anything going on <laughs> in our mics I, it's scary stuff i mean yeah i, I don't know it, it freaks me out a little bit but anyway he's on this tour so everyone's familiar with the route i, I hope you are but because the people loved him and the popular thing with this motorcade was to wave and be one with the people and the Secret Service was around then, but and they had plenty of agents. They did their advances and all the things Secret Service does, but kind of just more relaxed than it is now, right? I mean, the, the threats yeah, are a little different absolutely. back then, whatever. So the protective bubble on the limo was not installed. Another critical error because they said, oh, you know, we're fine. It's no big deal. We want to wave to everyone. So we're not going to put the bubble on. Bubble obviously would have saved his life. So they make the turn there. And I can't remember the name of the plaza. We've been there, though. We went there. Kind of cool. You drive right on the route. And the grassy knoll is there. The book depository is in that area. It's a six-floor building. And he gets shot. Multiple shots ring out. At least three. One of them hitting him in the throat. And then what is seen on video, because like I said, video, media was everywhere. A clear shot to the front of the head where his head kind of jerks back brain matter shoots out and goes onto the trunk jackie o tries to jump onto the trunk to grab a piece of his brain is what it said and to it, grab a piece of his yeah brain. not sure why she wanted to do that maybe they thought he could put it back together i don't know but what i always thought she was trying to get out because she sensed there was danger but it's confirmed that she said no i was trying to grab this piece of his head Oh, my God. That had been blown out of the back of his head. I missed that. Same. And an agent from the trailer car got and jumped on and like that car started speeding away and took him to the hospital where he later died in the hospital at one o'clock. So this Warren Commission was formed by um, LBJ once he took office to investigate this, much like the 9-11 Commission report that we're familiar with now, the report that went into the MLK assassination, these kind of government-led groups. However, this group was real hesitant. They didn't want to be part of it for some reason. Hmm. But they reluctantly did it. Over 10 months, they investigated this incident. Investigation was primarily done by the CIA and FBI. So the president and this commission was like kind of not involved. They were overseeing it, but they didn't actually do the work. Okay. After 10 months, they came out and said that we believe that Lee Harvey Oswald shot him from the sixth floor of the book depository. So let's back up. Lee Harvey Oswald, right? Right. Are you familiar with his story? No, like not really. I I kind of try to avoid documentaries like The Plague. <laughs> so he was... Unless it's well, a crime documentary. This is history and it's crime. <laughs> <laughs> so fi on your okay. feelings toward documentaries. <laughs> anyway, he was an employee at the book depository. Oh, he, okay. I didn't know that. No. And so he was seen in the area... Witnesses said they heard a shot come from there. A shot did come from there. The theories are that there were multiple shots that came from different areas, the grassy knoll and on the ground and whatever. But a shot did come from there. 
I personally believe a shot did come from him. I'm pretty sure that's been confirmed. His prints were on the rifle. The rifle was traced back to him, much like the MLK situation. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he wasn't part of a bigger plot or had help. So I did mess something up. It, it's believed that he shot two shots from up there. But this Warren Commission theory is called the single shot theory because they don't okay. believe any others were involved. So anyway, witnesses saw some of them being Dallas police. They rushed into the building where on their way up, they came across Oswald. Right. In a break room with a bottle of soda. Oh. And so he obviously found his way out as they went up. On the sixth floor, they found what appeared to be a sniper nest. Like there were boxes propped up. Okay. looked like it had been there a while. So either some planning going on or whatever. They also found the rifle in a room across the way. They found multiple bullets in the room, shell casings, things like that. And other bullets that could have been used should they should he needed them. So anyway, smash cut to 40 minutes later across town. Lee Harvey Oswald apparently shot a Dallas police officer, a patrolman, J.D. Tippett was his name. And then he entered into a movie theater and this was seen. Oh, so they missed him? It's not that they missed him. They just He's in a break room with a soda. They assumed like he had nothing. Well, that's what I'm saying. So they didn't get him at that yeah, point. No, no oh, he okay. left. So I was I'm confused. Try to imagine the scene in your head, right? The right. shots ring out. Okay. Presidents get shot. Get drives away. Think about it like any active shooter incident, the Vegas incident from a couple of years ago. It's chaos everywhere. The, the shooter could run right past you and you'd have no idea as a right. responder because you're looking for all these things okay. or whatever. So, yeah, they saw him. They came across him and they remember seeing him. But they're just, eh, see you later. So, for, like I said, 40 minutes across town, he kills somebody. He's taken into custody at that point from the movie theater. And he gets taken to prison. After hours of interrogation, they determine that he has no regard for life because he killed the police officer. Yeah. And they determined that based on forensics that they had at the moment and all those things, that he shot JFK as well. So he's arrested. In the crowd with the press, the press took to this immediately, like, oh, this must be our guy. This is it. This is it. They, they thought they had their guy pretty much case closed a couple days into this thing. So on Friday, there was a press conference. And like I said, tons of press around this in the 60s. They, they were very prevalent. Oswald is addressing and answering questions, and he's saying, I didn't do this. I would never hurt anyway. I'd never do anything like this. In the crowd was Jack Ruby, who was a bar owner. He owned the carousel. And while he's listening to this, he had a loaded gun in his pocket. And he didn't do anything then. But later, when Oswald was being moved to, to a different facility a couple days later, he finally stepped up and decided he was going to shoot him, and he killed him. So oh. all within a week... Our suspect was, we thought, caught and then assassinated himself by who we thought had nothing to do with the assassination. Jack Ruby is not considered a conspirator or anything like that. He's just considered to be someone who was angry and trying to step up and be a hero and say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to kill this guy who killed the president. So they didn't think he was doing it. So he wouldn't say anything. No, they didn't think that. And they still don't to this day. He's not associated with any part of this at all. They just huh. think he was a okay. bystander who was a. Kennedy fan and wanted to avenge his murder. Hmm, okay. So a fun fact real quick is that in 1963, there was no federal law prohibiting, prohibiting the assassination of a president. So if you're upset oh, with them, that's nice. there's no laws involved here. You can go ahead and do this. Okay. So the Warren Commission determined that it was Lee Harvey Oswald. However, like I've been saying, the media was very involved in this 
And I guess from the very beginning, the media reported that there were multiple shots that witnesses heard, they heard, filming the motorcade from different areas around the route. So they had reported that from the beginning. And so when this report came out 10 months later, everybody's like, wait a second. The media was there. This person was an eyewitness and said, I saw and heard a shot from the grassy knoll and went running up toward that way. What gives? Yeah. That's how the conspiracy theories started like coming about. People started really looking more into this. So even though the media had these this footage, and have you heard of this, the Zapruder films? No. So that was someone filming. That's the best footage we have. It's very clear color photos of the shot. Okay. And that was kind of a surprise in the investigation, but the Warren Commission determined that that can prove whatever you want it to prove. Like, you can look at it, and if you're a conspiracy theorist, you can say, oh, yeah, this happened. Well, but what would be the reason for his head shooting backward? So that gets investigated later. Doctors were interviewed from the hospital. One of them, who's still alive when this was made, was commenting, saying it was very clear that the wound entered into the throat. And that the the hole in the back of the head that Jackie O was reaching for the pieces of the brain was absolutely an exit wound. There's no way a hole that big would be an entrance wound. Right. Okay. And so they're saying without a doubt, medical science tells you he was shot from the front 100%. Okay. But there's tons of hard evidence that the Warren Commission looked at that has Lee Harvey Oswald all over it. His fingerprints on the gun several witnesses saying they saw pigeons flee from the roof, him shooting the officer later. I mean, everything leads to him being involved in shooting. So based on all that evidence, the doctors interviewed all these different films, these different vantage points, people coming forward. They finally did something about it. The House of Representatives acknowledged the demand for answers and created a second panel to investigate this from 1976 to 1979. You may remember this from a couple episodes ago, but the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Oh, that's right. Yeah. This is the same ones that investigated the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. So they conducted a secondary investigation and representatives from the FBI and CIA testified under oath to the HSCA that they withheld evidence from the Warren Commission that would have led to findings of conspiracy. Okay. So not sure if they had orders to do so or they just didn't want to stir the pot, but they admitted that they withheld evidence that they had. Probably this doctor testimony and things like that that I spoke of. A CIA agent that worked on this case, name of Arlen Spector, he wrote a book called Passions for the Truth, where he said that his own team on the CIA misled the Warren Commission and that J. Edgar Hoover also withheld information Mm. himself personally as the director of the FBI. So all things are starting to point toward conspiracy, just like with the MLK situation we spoke about. Yeah. The HSCA issued their final report in 1979, and they reversed the Warren Commission findings and said this was active conspiracy, multiple gunmen Mm. from all different areas. Based on scientific acoustical evidence, I'm going to have to look into what that means. I'm not sure what the acoustic Sounds. Yeah, I get that, but I don't know what, I, I don't know. I, so I thought, it, I, I'm sure they had interviews of people saying, I was at this point when okay, I heard okay. this shot and it sounded this loud. Yes, they did. So that, and they could probably, okay. based on that, make some sort of map of... Right. A diagram and everything. And right. plus they had the doctor's testimony on the wound sizes and everything right. like that. So they concluded that JFK had probably been killed by a conspiracy involving another gunman on the grassy knoll. Mm-hmm. 
So they basically debunked that report, but the government still accepted that report. This is the first time, and I'm pretty sure the only time in history, there's been two government-ordered and led reports that are contradictory to one another on file. Wow. In in wherever they put the files. In the filing cabinet. <laughs> in the in the president's secret book. In the president's secret book on page, what was it? 163? I can't remember. Yeah. So that's where we're at with this one. Yeah. That's, that's theory number one. The Warren Crazy. report, which was done by the CIA and FBI, who I believe were corrupt at the time. Yeah. Maybe still are. Who knows? I, who the CIA knows? Is, can do all kinds of creepy things. Um, but the House Select Committee on Assassinations sees otherwise. And now there's two reports out there and nobody still knows the answer. Everything's know, been insane. Everything's been locked up and has been marked top secret without a date to like reopen them. We still to this day don't have an answer as to what happened. Crazy. So over the next couple episodes, we'll get into some other theories that go down CIA involvement, mafia involvement. Mm, I'm excited. Very similar to MLK, right? So, I mean, yeah. the, we might be uncovering something that was a recurring trend in the 60s of federal government corruption to overthrow people they didn't like. A lot of people didn't like JFK. Several people did. But a lot of people didn't like his stance on military involvement and peace treaties and right. things like that with Cuba. Yep. So, yeah, a lot of reason to... Let's just get rid of this guy. And maybe, maybe it's a whole family conspiracy. We'll mm. see. Interesting. Well, that's my story. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I love it. Happy and remember, you know, what did we learn from this? If your spouse gets off in a car and the brain goes flying, reach for it. Reach for the brain. Yeah. Don't just let it go. Grab it. That's Grab a good that brain. Right there. Grab that brain matter. Hell yeah. Wasn't she wearing gloves too? Oh, I'm sure that I was a thing, was. right? Yeah. And yeah. From what I can remember, but I could be completely wrong. Ooh, maybe she's part of it. She had the gloves to not have the fingerprints and she's no. hiding evidence of the blown off head. No, I don't think so. Ooh. All right. Well, to see pictures and more information on these cases, be sure to follow us on social media at How Did We Miss That? And a big thank you for our theme composition goes to Audio Anywhere Productions. You can find them at audioanywhereproductions.com. See you next week. And until then, keep your head up and look out for each other. Mm-hmm.